Hi, I'm Stuart McGill from the South East London branch of the Communist Party of Britain. I'm talking tonight to Rob Griffiths, the General Secretary of Party, about the very serious situation unfolding in Ukraine. We're recording this on the evening of Friday 25th of February, so by the time you hear this, things will have moved on. Now, on a personal basis, I'm finding it very difficult to have a nuanced conversation with anyone about the situation because people know little beyond the picture that we get from the media. That picture tends to focus on simple, good v evil narratives, heroes, villains, and national caricatures that ignore the issue of economics, class interests, and the wider historical context. We're going to try and put this right today, and we'll also focus on what needs to happen if we can avoid more blood, if we are to avoid more bloodshed, or even a global catastrophe. Now, Comrade Griffiths, you opened today's statement from the Communist Party of Britain on the crisis with the war between Russia and Ukraine is part of a wider conflict between capitalist powers, between Russia on one side and Ukraine and the expansionist NATO powers on the other. Obviously not a view I've heard on the BBC, could you explain the thinking behind this with reference to the motivations of the key players in the crisis? Well, Stuart, the Communist Party is uh, very aware that the picture that's been presented by virtually all of the mainstream media in Britain uh, of this conflict is very much a black and white picture. Um, it's not a colour. It's not a colour picture. It's got no nuanced shades whatsoever. Um, our media have been uh, one-sided to an extent I don't even think was the case in the, in the, in the Falklands War um, or, or the Iraq War. And therefore, the Communist Party was very concerned to actually begin our statement um, by breaking through the stereotypes, the very crude and outdated stereotypes in many ways, that our media depends upon um, uh, in, 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 in presenting this black and white picture to people to reinforce the stereotypes. Um, for example, there are still many people in Britain and the media uh, does very little to educate uh, to, to the contrary. There's still many people who believe that Putin is a communist, that uh, Russia, the Russian Federation is some kind of communist country. And of course that is absolutely not the case. Uh, the socialist system in the former Soviet Union has been overthrown. Uh, virtually everything, with the exception perhaps of gas, Gazprom, the oil and gas company, but virtually every sector of the uh, Russian economy has long been privatized and much of it is in the hands of a small number of extremely wealthy uh, and extremely influential oligarchs, if you like, monopoly capitalists. And after a bit of a power struggle between them, um, the section that, uh, that Putin uh, uh, is aligned with and represents came out on top. And so we feel it's necessary to make it very clear from the beginning in our statement that Putin represents the interests of Russia's big business oligarchs who profit from that theft of Russia's economic assets, a theft of course, from the working class that previously used to own them through nationalization. And uh, again, to reinforce that point, we go on to say that far from wishing to restore the Soviet Union, that's another favorite line of so, much, so many of our media at the moment, 
um, Putin explicitly rejects socialism. He is an anti-socialist and an anti-communist. Uh, and in particular, uh, in relation to the Ukraine question, he has explicitly attacked uh, the policy uh, formulated by Lenin that the Soviet Union should be a federal system uh, that gave uh, considerable devolution to the different nationalities, the many different nationalities uh, within the former Soviet Union, and autonomy to many of the nationally distinct and culturally distinct regions. Um, uh, so, you know, the, we, we're very clear, we have to be very clear about what Putin does and doesn't represent. And of course, the Ukrainian government, in a sort of mini version of this, the Ukrainian government represents the big business interests of the small number of powerful monopoly capitalists who hugely benefited from the privatization of the Ukrainian economy after the collapse of the Soviet Union and the counter-revolution. Right. Uh, and, and, yeah, and indeed, of course, whether we're talking about Russian oligarchs or Ukrainian oligarchs, let's not forget that they're not just thieves, they are crooks. They are incredibly wealthy crooks. Much of their Welsh wealth is stashed in the city of London and in other tax havens around the world. The uh, extent of Ukrainian holdings in the Credit Suisse Bank, secret holdings, of course, enormous amounts of wealth, that's just been blown wide open by a, a whistleblower from inside Credit Suisse. So we're talking about two gangs of, of big business crooks here that are represented in, in Russia by Putin and in Ukraine by the, by the current and previous Ukrainian governments. Right. Thanks very much for that uh, analysis. Very piercing and something you don't hear on the BBC. Something else the BBC doesn't cover is just what an economic disaster Ukraine is. Now, people talk about Putin doesn't want to have a nice liberal <coughs> democracy with economic success on his doorstep. Now, it's no liberal democracy, Ukraine. You can do five years in prison if you're um, caught singing one of the former Soviet anthems. Uh, but it's also no economic success. It suffered a devastating shock in the 1990s, along with most of the <coughs> Soviet <coughs> GDP per capita in real terms halved between 1990 and 1996. It then recovered to 80% of its 1990 level by 2007, and since then it's stagnated. So 30 years on, Ukraine's GDP per capita in real terms is 20% lower than it was in 1990. And this is the kind of background to what kicked off the 2013 and 2014 events, which largely took us to where we are now. By 2013, Kyiv was definitely trying to play off the IMF, the European Union and Russia, looking for a deal to rescue the economy. The result was in 2013 was a winner-takes-all bidding war between the EU and Russia for influence over Ukraine. Now, Yankovic's regime first encouraged its population to believe it was swinging towards the EU. Then faced with the demanding European financial terms, and as we all know, the European Union is not an easy taskmaster, as our Greek friends discovered, uh, and they got a far more lucrative offer from Moscow. So it swung abruptly back towards Russia. It was all this that triggered the right-wing-led maiden coup and Ukraine's pivot to the West. The Russians tightened customs controls. The IMF demanded that the currency be allowed to float as part of its package of economic reforms and that currency subsequently lost 70% of its value 
over 2014-2015. The loss of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts also led to a drop in exports of 12% over 2014 to 2015. This again is information you tend not to hear from our mainstream media uh, and it's important backdrop to, backdrop to the crisis. What do you think were the long-term implications of that pivot for Ukraine politically rather than just economically? Well firstly Stuart I'd, I'd just like to congratulate you on presenting uh, some economic analysis about, about the economic basis of, of Ukraine society and Russia, Russian society, because again, this is a vital uh, dimension to the conflict that is simply not talked about at all. Um, you know, I think what Putin's unfor- what is unforgivable as far as Western uh, big business interests about Putin is concerned is that he saw the enormous damage that was being done by the pillaging of the Russian economy, including by Western capital. And he's tried to formulate some kind of protectionist, nationalist defense of it uh, by building an alliance of uh, of nationalist uh, oligarchs, if you like, in Russia and implementing a certain protectionist approach um, uh, and uh, utilizing, of course, the extensive um, uh, oil and gas and uh, precious metal uh, reserves that that Russia has. So uh, Putin has tried to put a halt to this wholesale Western pillaging of the Russian economy, not with any great success, it has to be said. And in fact, he's replaced one bunch of thieves uh, largely by homegrown thieves. So the Russian people uh, have been suffering enormously in terms of, of, of their economic uh, system and their economic well-being, um, and yes, um, Ukraine had uh, had several options in front of it as a as a fully independent uh, country after the early 1990s, um, and it, it became evident that the EU path was not going to be in the interests of the mass of people of the Ukraine, and that in fact a more constructive economic relationship with Russia might be a more beneficial alternative. And uh, that, of course, was completely unacceptable to the European Union and to the major Western capitalist powers, uh, not least the United States and and Britain. And therefore, the president that that you mentioned, Yanukovych, who began to turn away a little from the European Union and turn towards some kind of economic and even political, to some extent, uh, relationship with Russia, that was unacceptable. And so we saw uh, we saw the demonstrations uh, heavily Western-backed, infiltrated by neo-Nazi forces and so on, that eventually drove Yanukovych, the democratically elected president of the Ukraine, that also is overlooked. He was effectively sacked um, by the parliament, full of uh, anti-Russian um, uh, and pro-Western elements. Um, but the end result is that Ukraine's economy is a basket case. Uh, Russia's is not quite a basket case because they have these immensely valuable resources, even though, of course, a fair amount of that wealth is being siphoned off and stashed away in the city of London and other uh, tax havens and secret bank accounts around the world. 
So, you know, the long, the longer term future, one would have thought that could give any kind of half decent standard of living to the people of the Ukraine uh, would not be to go in with the European Union and allow free market forces to continue to wreck that economy as they began to do so after after 1991. You know, clearly, Ukraine needs a constructive and fair economic relationship with its neighbours. Uh, and in particular, it needs um, it needs a relationship with Russia because Russia can supply uh, 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 gas uh, to the Ukrainian economy and was prepared to do so and has done so in the past on relatively reasonable grounds. Uh, again, uh, Gazprom has been quite a um, it's been it's been uh, quite a, a, a fair supplier of gas to uh, to Germany and to other parts of Eastern Europe because it, it is it is not quite as greedy and as criminally uh, uh, profiteering as the Western oil and gas companies by and large I don't want to give too much credit to Gazprom but nevertheless you know it has pro it has provided a service um, that certainly Germany has valued right up until the present time, although their arms are being twisted now. Um, no, I, I think the future of Ukraine surely lies just as much, if not more, with its neighbours and to the east uh, as it does to the west. We've seen what the European Union has done to other economies that won't meet the financial um, uh, strictures that that um, that the EU has tried to impose and so on, not just uh, not just um, the one that you mentioned, Stuart Greece. That's the most notorious example. But we've seen how the EU has acted to enforce or try to enforce large-scale privatisation, not only on Greece but on Cyprus, on Ireland, on Portugal, and so on. Um, well. Ukraine has had that mass privatization already and it's been a disaster uh, and uh, it's also done enormous damage to the Russian economy. So there's no future for either of those countries and their peoples um, being subject to the free market neoliberal rules of the European Union. They've had a dose of that and it's been a disaster for the majority of the population in both countries. Right, very good analysis again. Thank you for that there, Rob. Now, looking here again at Ukraine politically, I've debated with a few people, including some people in my own house over the last couple of days, who point out that the, the lack of electoral success of the far right in Ukraine is an indication that this is actually a peace-loving liberal democracy. <clears throat> the reality is a lot more complicated. The, the power and influence of the far right in the Ukrainian state is significantly disproportionate to its electoral strength. There's been numerous studies about this phenomenon. Some made inside, uh, made inside Ukraine itself. The power of the right, I think, is evinced by the success of the maiden coup itself and Ukraine's failure to act on the minced agreements that look to integrate, you know, reintegrate the breakaway Donbass region into Ukraine with more autonomy. Granting that autonomy to the eastern <coughs> provinces would have provoked a violent response from the various right-wing organizations that play an important mm. role in the fighting there. Given the existence of these organizations on the front line, and we're talking about the Azov Battalion and others across there who are straightforward Nazis, I can personally understand why Russia doesn't want Ukraine in NATO. 
It will embolden the fascist fighters for one thing. They might kick off an incident, Russian troops respond, and they do an incursion into Ukraine proper, for want of a better term. With NATO's mutual defence protocols, they'll be ignited and we end up with World War III. So I can understand the Russian uh, fairly aggressive position not wanting Ukraine to join NATO. Do you think any of this justifies the Russian invasion? Well, just, just before I come to that, if I may, Stuart, you know, I, I, I think it's important to point out that the political struggle inside the Ukraine before uh, before this escalation and now the outbreak of war there, the main political struggle, uh, leaving aside the, the national question for a moment, was not between uh, Ukrainian liberals and fascists, you know, one against the other. Um, there's there's a barely a, a political force of any significance that we could describe as liberal in the broad sense that we understand it here. Um, the, the major parties in Ukraine are nationalists. They are nationalists and they are right-wing nationalists. We could call them, many of them we would say would be on the right wing of the Conservative Party or even further right than that. And of course, yes, in the end, they responded to the overtly fascist neo-Nazi threat, um, although not to the extent of actually closing them down completely. But they certainly have, uh, they've, they certainly have worked hard to exclude their influence from parliamentary politics, not least to try and make things look a little better uh, to the West and so on. Um, but those in power, those in office and power in Ukraine at the moment, you know, are, are, are not liberals. They're not even, they're not even what what our popular press might call moderate conservatives. They are nationalists. They they are anti-Russian. They are viciously anti-socialist. Uh, they're anti-communist, of course, and they venerate they venerate those extreme right-wing and fascist uh, elements um, that fought alongside the Nazis in the Second World War and fought against the Soviet Red Army. So we shouldn't be under any you know, misapprehension um, about the character of politics in, um, uh, in, in Ukraine. Um, I said they were anti-socialist. Of course, what they've done, uh, again, you alluded to this um, <laughs> uh, earlier, Stuart, you know, they've banned the Communist Party. The Communist Party in Ukraine was a significant political force. At some elections, all certified as reasonably fairly conducted in the past anyway, at some of those elections, they were winning 12-15% of the vote. They had a dozen or more uh, members of the Ukrainian uh, parliament, and they have been outlawed. Not because they stand for the breakup of Ukraine, they don't. They do call for uh, autonomy. Um, uh, uh, and a federal solution to the national problem within Ukraine, which after all is, was the basis of the Minsk agreements that the Western powers um, helped to formulate along with, uh, along with Russia. So they, they don't stand for the breakup of Ukraine. They stand for a federal solution, but they are socialists and they are communists. And for that reason alone, they've been outlawed the leader of the Ukrainian Communist Party, who was an MP, was physically attacked whilst addressing the Ukrainian parliament. And the fascists who attacked him suffered no penalty whatsoever. 
And of course, those fascist gangs have continued to attack Ukrainian communists physically, not just polemically, but physically. And nothing has been done to restrain those fascist forces. Instead, it's the communists who've been banned. Communist and socialist symbols such as the Red Star are banned and are outlawed. Uh, and the, every attempt has been made to try and drive the Ukrainian Communist Party out of existence, uh, beginning by driving it underground. It hasn't been, it hasn't been entirely successful. The heroic communists in, in Ukraine uh, have always fought back and tried to defend their position, but they've certainly been on the defensive. So we're not talking about some, you know, some uh, Western uh, liberal democracy as as we as it as it likes to present itself um, in the Ukraine. Um, we're talking about you know extreme right wing nationalist. Uh, and still fascist politics, that neo-Nazi battalion that you mentioned, which was responsible for many of the attacks on the uh, Russian population in uh, Donbass, that's actually been integrated into the Ukrainian army. Instead of being disbanded and imprisoned, it's been integrated. And, and the fascists who carried out that horrendous attack on the trade union headquarters in Odessa, in 2014, when the uh, elected president was overthrown. Again, the fascists who carried that out and murdered scores of, of people inside that, that trade union headquarters, absolutely nothing has been done. Rob, just give me to, a second there, because uh, can you just go ahead and explain to people what happened? Because again, this doesn't get much coverage in the mainstream press. So tell us what happened there. Well, when when we had the protests against the Yanukovych uh, government by anti-Russian and uh, nationalist and fascist elements, uh, the Euro Maiden uh, protest movement, so-called, um, the Ukrainian Communist Party uh, and uh, its uh, allies in the trade union movement were trying to launch uh, uh, launched a petition um, calling for a federal Ukraine as a way of maintaining the unity of the country. Um, and uh, the petitioners were physically attacked. Uh, a lot of them uh, were trade unionists. They took refuge inside the trade union headquarters in one of the main cities of Ukraine, Odessa, and the buildings were firebombed from outside by Nazis, uh, and estimates vary between a dozen and a hundred or more civilians were murdered. And yet nobody has ever been arrested, charged or imprisoned. The nationalist government of uh, Ukraine that, that usurped uh, Yanukovych uh, has done absolutely nothing. And those criminal fascist gangs have continued to act with impunity, as long as they're attacking communists and socialists. Um, when they were attacking the Ukrainian parliament for not being hardline enough, then the reaction came, uh, and the Ukrainian nationalist government clamped down on them. But for as long as they were attacking communists and socialists and trade unionists, that appeared apparently was perfectly acceptable. Uh, and by the way, the Western news coverage of that whole episode in Odessa, again, has all been part of a gigantic distortion of what took place, a deliberate attempt to say it's all very vague, it's not very clear how the fire started, we don't know how many died, perhaps the numbers have been exaggerated, and so on. 
but the film exists showing the petrol bombs being thrown into that building and throwing and, and showing some people trying to escape from that being cornered and murdered on the streets. Nothing done about it. So, you know, the, the nationalist governments of Ukraine are only, are only anti-fascist uh, when the fascists actually threaten the position of the nationalists. Otherwise, they march side by side to celebrate the pro-fascist um, their pro-fascist heroes such as Bandera um, from the Second World War and so on. So that's the real character of Ukrainian politics. And it's, it's interesting not because there's no doubt that if you control the historical narrative, you control how people feel right now. Of I've course. tried to explain this to a few people over the last couple of days. And because it's not reported, they kind of think it's made up uh, as mm. some kind of communist mm. plot to subvert the lovely heroized Ukrainian democracy. Also in re Ukraine, there's been plenty of attacks on Roma that Amnesty International have talked about and attacks on Jewish people as well. Uh, but um, does this justify what Russia's done? Well, our, our position, and we, you know, we debated this at length in our party's uh, political committee um, only yesterday evening, uh, uh, straight after the um, after the uh, military offensive was launched by Russia, the widespread military offensive. Um, we had a, a very long discussion. We analysed all of the different factors as carefully as we could, and so on, and we certainly came to the unanimous uh, conclusion clear we, we're not always unanimous by the way that's another anti-communist stereotype uh, we always we find plenty to discuss and sometimes to disagree and argue about but we came to the unanimous view that that offensive that's been launched across ukraine by uh, by putin and russia um, is not going to contribute towards creating any stable settlement of the different problems um, in terms of relations between peoples within Ukraine and the relations between Ukraine and Russia. In fact, they create new dangers. Of course, they immediately lead to the loss of life, including the loss of civilian life, um, enormous dislocation, widespread distress. Um, it's, it's difficult to believe um, that the Russian military intervention is going to achieve anything that is going to help solve the problem, and so we're very clear. We've uh, we've criticised that um, that action. Um, uh, we we we've added our voice to those who are calling for an immediate ceasefire, for a halt to all military operations uh, on all sides, um, and for a process to begin urgently uh, of discussion and negotiation. And this is not a pipe dream. This is what's happened in other conflicts elsewhere. Um, but what it needs is uh, countries with responsible governments to take their responsibilities to search for peace and work for peace seriously. Um, for example, we make the point Britain is a member of the security, a permanent member of the Security Council of the United Nations. We would expect those Security Council powers not directly involved in the conflict to be looking for ways of resolving it, to be calling for peace, offering guarantees, offering to host discussions between the parties to the conflict and so on. Instead, 
Britain has been piling logs onto the uh, onto the funeral pyre. We've been pumping the the military forces into into the seas and oceans around Russia. We've been stationing British military personnel in the countries bordering Russia. We've been pumping huge volumes of armaments all going to be paid for by the British taxpayer, ultimately, of course. We've been pumping hu a huge volume of armaments into Ukraine itself, and all of that has been accompanied by the ridiculous warmongering rhetoric that we've had from Britain's political leaders. Uh, and I think we probably reached a new low um, just uh, yesterday or the day before when Defence Secretary... Defence, of course, <laughs> is a deliberately uh, misleading description. But the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, came out with this preposterous drivel about how Britain kicked Russia's backside in 1853 or something, and we can do it again. I mean, that must be a new low. There used to be bourgeois standards of diplomacy and statesmanship. <laughs> They've all been cast to the to the winds of war and and instead of talking the language of diplomacy uh seeking a settlement seeking ceasefires then a settlement they've been talking the language of war all along um fortunately not every country is is doing that and not every country will do that i think it contrasts sharply of course in particular with china's response which is to state its uh, regret and disappointment that these hostilities have broken out. It understands, of course, how the enormous role that NATO expansionism has contributed to this outbreak of war. But uh, China's very clear. The top priority now must be an end to the fighting and the beginning of talks uh, towards a negotiated settlement. That's what... That's what the British government should be doing instead of, instead of yet again piling in alongside the United States and NATO into a military conflict, which ultimately is not going to resolve the deep running problems that need to be resolved in, uh, in Ukraine. Absolutely, comrade. Now, uh, the statement ends today with the Communist Party of Britain stands in solidarity with all peoples and movements who demand an immediate <clears throat> end to military action in Ukraine and condemns any moves to silence anti-war voices, whether in Britain, Ukraine or Russia. So what's your view on people like uh, Nicholas Sturgeon and others demanding that uh, Russia today uh, be banned or silenced in the UK? Because, I mean, it's flawed. It's undoubtedly flawed. That's the only news network that doesn't just recycle a NATO line. Well, that that is the case. I mean, watching Russia Russia today RT can be very frustrating, because uh, in offering a a very broad platform to speakers and guests of different viewpoints, it means you get far right people uh, featured on on some of their programs in some of their discussions. Um, you know, whether from Germany or. Uh, Britain and elsewhere, uh, and of course, uh, you know, one one responds by by understanding that they're going to contribute nothing to anybody's knowledge or understanding of the different problems in our society. But it also means by having that much broader approach, 
you see very serious um, academics, experts, intellectuals, uh, scholars, and so on, um, who put a non-establishment point of view about a whole number of questions. You never see them on British television. I, I, two examples immediately spring to mind. Um, Alison Pollock is a hugely internationally respected expert on healthcare. She's had very powerful things to say about the NHS. She does occasionally manage to get an article in, in, in perhaps The Guardian, but that's, that's it. We have never, I don't think I've ever seen her face on television in Britain. The other day on RT, but she's on RT, the other day on RT, we had um, uh, Professor Martin McCauley, again, an enormously respected historian of international reputation, whose area of expertise is Russia. He's not a communist. He's probably not a socialist. He's no apologist for Putin. But he's, his knowledge is enormously deep and wide-ranging. I have never seen him on British television. Um, uh, uh, and yet we have all these other think tanks and all these other... But as long as they reflect the Western pro-NATO consensus, they'll get on British tele mainstream television without any difficulty. The Martin McCauley's of this world, who don't automatically follow along behind the United States or NATO, as, as I say, I don't think I've ever seen his face on the BBC, Sky, ITV, and so on. But he was on RT, and, and I've seen, I've seen uh, guests on RT recently. I'm, I don't read it. I don't watch it quite as regularly as my contribution might suggest, but I've certainly tuned into it in the last few days. And there have been people on there who don't agree with Putin's mobilization, who don't agree with the military onslaught launched by Putin. And they're on RT and they're expressing those disagreements. Who have we seen on BBC, ITV, Sky and so on, actually disagreeing with NATO. And that brings me, Stuart, that does bring me to, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned um, um, Sturgeon in the SNP. I watched that debate in the House of Commons just the other day, day before yesterday, after Boris Johnson's announcement. And uh, there were speakers from Plaid Cymru, the SNP, the Labour Party, the Green Party, I'm describing them as though they're in separate parties, but they all spoke as members of one party, the uh, British Imperialist War Party. They all spoke in that way. They all wanted, you know, more um, bigger military build-up, more military aid to Ukraine, uh, more severe sanctions on Putin and Russia, which actually in the end would mean more sanctions, of course, that would hit the Russian people. And it was extraordinary in particular to hear the SNP implied Cymru representatives banging the war drum. They may as well have wrapped themselves in the Union Jack. It's almost embarrassing. They're supposed to be Welsh and Scottish nationalists, uh, but, you know, they could have been banging the drum for Imperial Britain back in the Crimean Wars of the last century and so on. Absolutely extraordinary performance. I've so, been amazed myself to hear all that. And I've got to say, the only person I've actually heard on the BBC 
uh, took in any way opposed to the regular narrative was uh, Peter Hitchens, who was on the World Service uh, yesterday morning at about 5.30, so probably only me and a few other insomniacs. Probably, and, probably only Peter Hitchens' close relatives might have might have heard that. Probably, I uh, well, too many friends. Yeah. So, uh, but, uh, so yeah, I think there is no. Yeah. Sorry, uh, sorry, Stuart. I think there is now a real danger that RT will be closed down. Um, they've been after it for a long while because, as I say, because it has a, a much uh, broader guest uh, 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 range of guests, speakers and so on and participants than our mainstream media. There have been sanctions against it in the past for not towing the NATO line. And of course, the first one in, in the House of Commons to demand that something be done to shut down RT was Keir Starmer. Um, so I think there is a real threat now to RT um, uh, to prevent us hearing the dissident voices, the pro-peace voices and so on. Um, uh, of course, uh, if one stands up in Ukraine and, uh, and does anything other than echo the jingoism and the nationalism of the Ukrainian government, uh, then one would be in severe physical danger. And let's not forget the heroic uh, peace campaigners in Russia. I don't know if the Western media has exaggerated the extent of the anti-war protests, but certainly there are anti-war protests there. And uh, I think we should salute them. Um, we should do the opposite, of course, to what Keir Harmer does. Keir Starmer, Harmer, sorry, that, I think that, that was a, a Freudian slip. I think, you know, Keir Starmer, of course, is concerned to attack and try and discredit the Stop the War Coalition in Britain because, um, as, as Andrew Murray uh, put it in the, uh, in the Morning Star just the other day, of course, Keir Starmer is one of the leaders of, was one of the leaders of the Start the War Coalition um, uh, and uh, therefore has been attacking the Stop the War Coalition. These voices for peace are precious. They're the only voices that provide any hope for the future. And the drive for peace is the only basis on which we're going to have a successful search um, for a peaceful and just settlement to the uh, issues um, that are in, uh, at the root of the conflict in the Ukraine at the moment. It's certainly extraordinary how social democrats become plucky little patriots uh, the first time they hear the drums of war beating away. My old man taught me that a few years ago with a few other bits of choice language chucked in. Uh, Rob, what's, uh, what has the Russian, uh, the Russian Communist Party said about this, uh, about well, this whole issue and what's your view of that? Let me just say quickly, mind Stuart, that, you know, I think it's a perversion of patriotism. Patriotism is not necessarily of essence, warmongering or opposed to other nationalities and so on. Um, you know, it's possible to be, uh, Lenin wrote about this, actually, it's possible to be patriotic about all the good things and the progressive things in one's country, the heroic struggles against oppression. Uh, it's quite right. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with taking pride in those things. It's when that feeling of, you know, loving the things that you're familiar with, that you've grown up with and so on, and in particular, um, taking pride in everything that's progressive, um, uh, it's when that is distorted and perverted into a kind of nationalism. 
that becomes jingoistic, that wants to fight, that wants to attack other peoples, that doesn't respect other people's cultures and nationalities and, and identities and so on. I think that's that's the problem. And, and, and we're seeing how those in what could otherwise be quite normal and even progressive patriotic feelings, we're seeing how those are being played upon and distorted by Putin in Russia and by the Ukrainian uh, uh, government and state uh, in, in that country. The Russian party, you know, I think the, the, we, have to, we have to show some real sensitivity to Russia's history, uh, including developments since the uh, collapse and, uh, and counter-revolution in the former Soviet Union. Um, we make quite a lot in Britain still, in, in our films, in public ceremonies, in our history books, in our schools. We make a lot about Britain's um, participation in the Second World War and the heroic role that Britain played in the defeat of fascism. Uh, and it's omnipresent, isn't it, in books, films, cinema, uh, and so on. It's a, it's, it remains a huge point of historic reference for people in England, Wales, and, and Scotland. Um, well, not surprisingly, that, that, uh, that reference point is even stronger in Russia which is perfectly understandable, given that the scale of the damage done by the Second World War to the Russian nation was way beyond anything that we experienced in Britain. Not just 27 million dead, a far higher proportion of the population than anything Britain experienced, but also that they had to rebuild thousands, and I mean thousands, not hundreds or scores, they had to rebuild 2,000 towns and cities in Russia as a result of the Second World War. So the Great Patriotic War, as they call it, is deeply imprinted on Russian society. And, uh, and therefore, when they see NATO not only continuing after the Warsaw, I mean, it was set up six years before the Warsaw Pact was set up, we were told then for the following 30 or 40 years that its sole reason for existence was to, um, was to uh, guard us against uh, um, a huge land invasion by the Warsaw-backed pact uh, uh, countries led by the Soviet Union. Always a complete and utter myth, of course. Um, but this was the role that NATO, the essential role that NATO was playing, so we were told. So you would have thought when the Warsaw Pact uh, was wound up in 1991, why wasn't NATO wound up? Instead, it's continued in existence and it's grown enormously in scale for the past 30 years since the end of the Warsaw Pact. So it's not surprising that for many Russians, and not just those who try and manipulate public opinion like Putin and others, for many Russians, they look with enormous trepidation on this, not only this continued existence of, of uh, NATO, but its expansion right up to the borders of Russia. Um, the installation of military bases 
of missile systems uh, and so on, the stationing of NATO troops in countries of Eastern Europe and in the Baltic republics and so on. Now, this doesn't look very defensive from a Russian standpoint, uh, especially as, of course, Gorbachev and Shevardnadze are just two of the Soviet leaders who were assured during those discussions in the early 1990s, they were assured that NATO would not expand as a result of the, of the uh, ending of the Warsaw Pact. Um, and by the way, these assurances, again, it's been presented in the Western media as if these are myths or they were just asides in a conversation. These assurances are in the recorded records and minutes and statements of numerous meetings, not just between Gorbachev um, and uh, Bush senior, but also in meetings between German ministers, British ministers, NATO representatives and Soviet representatives. They were promised solemnly that NATO would not expand after the end of the Warsaw Pact. I also remember at a time that various people on the American side and who were not exactly comrades warned deeply uh, and very, very strongly against any further expansion of NATO because it would lead to problems like this. Mm. Uh, you described a historical background and you know, what happened in the Great Patriotic War, which I think is also a phrase you can't use in Ukraine. I think Ukraine, you have to refer to it as World War II the way we do, <clears throat> rather than mm. the Patriotic War. Do you think that's why the Russian party appears to actually favour this military intervention? Well, the Russian party, like communist parties around the world, you know, opposes these aggressive military alliances, um, of, of which NATO is the prime example. Uh, we've now set up another one, of course, with the United States and Australia in the so-called AUKUS Pact aimed at China. Communists around the world oppose these aggressive uh, international military alliances. Um, and therefore, the Russian party, as one would expect, has been to the fore in this. But they also share these enormously deep fears, uh, trepidations about that expansion of NATO and all of the belligerent rhetoric that has gone with it. And um, they're also, of course, acutely aware of how the two enclaves in Donbass, now they've declared themselves People's Republics of, uh, of uh, Russian speakers, have become under military attack as well as being treated with utter contempt by the Ukrainian government when the Minsk agreement uh, actually obliged the Ukrainian government to negotiate with those, um, those two uh, Russian enclaves and so on to bring about a, a peaceful settlement of the conflicting interests. Well, of course, the, 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 the Russian communists and the Russian people have seen the, how these two enclaves are, are, are besieged, in effect and treated in the way they've been treated. So it's not surprising that the Russian party has, uh, in fact, the Russian Communist Party proposed in the Russian parliament, in the Duma, uh, that Russia should recognize diplomatically the two people's republics as independent sovereign states. And that was a Communist Party uh, resolution that was successful in the Duma. Um, and, and the Russian party has gone on from that has supported the uh, the sending of military assistance 
to those republics and has now declared itself in support of the Russian military intervention. I'm afraid, you know, we can't agree with that. Our honest assessment is that this is not going, none of this is going to contribute towards a lasting and stable settlement of the Ukrainian question that would be in everybody's interests, in the interests of all the different communities in Ukraine, the interests of the Russian people, and the interest of the peoples of Eastern Europe and Western Europe and Britain, for that matter. So um, most of the most of the communist parties around the world that have declared uh, their position on the very latest developments, uh, we all agree about NATO, NATO expansionism, about the Western plunder of Russia and Ukraine and other countries around the world. But uh, most of the communist parties, I'm thinking of the communist parties of Spain, uh, Portugal, um, uh, uh, India, uh, a whole number of the major communist parties, Greece, Turkey, um, Venezuela, Mexico, a whole number of major communist parties have said that uh, they think that this, uh, this latest development, the military incursion by Russia across Ukraine uh, is wrong. It's going to be almost certainly going to be counterproductive and it's adding to the problem rather than helping to resolve it. The Chinese communists haven't gone quite that far, but they have made it clear that the top priority must be peace, must be the search for peace and end the hostilities uh, immediately, the search for peace and the effort now to bring about discussions and a uh, and a peaceful settlement of the conflict. Rob, last thing before we have to wind up here. What can people do? How can we in any way influence this situation and try to restore peace and sanity? Well, you know, there are meetings, there are physical meetings, there are online meetings, there are meetings to speak up for peace, uh, to oppose the role the highly inflammatory and provocative role that the British government, the Tory government, have played in events so far. Um, you know, there will be there will be uh, um, public meetings. There will be uh, protests and demonstrations. We urge people to join with uh, Stop the War, uh, CND, um, uh, the Labour Left, Socialists, peace organisations, the Communist Party, we're urging people to speak out. We cannot allow ourselves to be silenced. And, uh, you know, when we consider the shameful behaviour of Starmer, not only to attack, uh, stop the war, um, but also to demand that 11 MPs, Labour MPs, cease calling for an end to hostilities and for a peaceful settlement. They're not backing Putin or Russia. They're simply... They wanted that they've signed a declaration calling for a ceasefire and a negotiated settlement, and they've been threatened with expulsion from the Parliamentary Labour Party as a result. I'm sorry to see they've withdrawn that names. I can't help feeling that prominent figures on the Labour left in the past, whether it's uh, Foot or before he became a, uh, uh, one of the leaders of the Labour Party, and now in Bevan, 
great MPs like Sidney Silverman, S.O. Davis, Emrys Hughes, they, uh, they would never have withdrawn their names. They would have stood up and spoken out for peace and for an immediate end to hostilities and for negotiations that took account of Russia's genuine fears as far as Western expansionism is concerned. That's what's needed now. We need people to speak up. Yes, all the traditional things as well. Write to your MP. Uh, um, uh, uh, write letters to the press. But in this modern age, put things on your Facebook page. Speak out against this war. Speak up for peace. And demand that the British government become a peacemaker instead of a warmonger. Right, very clear instructions there. Uh, you can find the statement on the Communist Party Facebook page and the Twitter page as well. If you go onto my uh, Facebook site, you'll find plenty of stuff on there as well. Uh, and uh, it's now just for us to go ahead and thank you very much there, Rob, for that, uh, that talk. Very interesting stuff, which I hope has helped educate people a little bit more about this extremely difficult and dangerous topic. Thanks for, thanks, for the, thanks for the rare opportunity um, to make my point on the media, Stuart. Um, I, uh, I don't get invitations like this from the BBC or Sky or ITV, as you might well imagine. I can't, for the life of me, I can't understand why. <laughs> anyway, it remains me to go ahead and thank you, Rob, and to thank everybody here for listening. Stay strong, stay safe, and always seek understanding beyond your immediate perception. Good night.